Hey, live from AC Second listeners, this is Sam Mulberry with our summer podcast series. This series is based on my spring 2018 sabbatical project in which I interviewed 15 faculty who won the Bethel University Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching. As part of this project, I created long-form video interviews with these people to talk about the art and craft of teaching, to talk about how they became teachers, how they think about teaching, how they think about education and interacting with students. So I want to share these full interviews with you throughout the course of this summer. If you're interested in watching these interviews, you can go to cwcradio.wordpress.com and look under the Teaching Project. If you want to watch the feature-length documentary, Why We Teach, which is based on this interview series, you can also find that at cwcradio.wordpress.com. We'll be dropping interviews from this series onto the podcast feed throughout this summer. Our interview today is with Marion Larson, the Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching winner from 2001. I'm Marian Larson. I teach in the English department and I've been at Bethel for 31 years. I've been a, a school geek ever since preschool, I think. <laughs> um, my mom said when I was four, um, I would consist, she would go in my room to wake me up in the morning before going to preschool and I was already dressed uh, and sitting on my bed waiting for her, to <laughs> for her to come in to take me. So I've always loved school, always really liked learning um, and I've always loved reading so I think the whole being the chance to continue to be connected with school in some way and to be connected with a discipline where words matter text matter um, just feels like a natural outgrowth of who I've been my whole life when I was in high school I assumed I would be a high school English teacher and when I started college I went to Wheaton um, when I started college, I was doing language arts, secondary ed as a major, um, and I appreciated the teaching, you know, the pedagogy-related classes that I had, but I really didn't like my field experiences. I thought, yeah, I'm not so sure I want to be around middle school or high school kids all the time. It felt like I would be spending too much of my time doing classroom management and other things. And uh, there were also cl more classes in lit and philosophy that I wanted to take that I wouldn't have had time to do. So I dropped the ed part and added a philosophy minor. And by that time I had decided it was really being a college teacher that I wanted to do. Um, and so I uh, uh, ended up graduating with a lit, and, uh, lit major philosophy minor and went straight into a PhD program right out of college. College was a really good experience for me. Um, it was a great experience for me intellectually, spiritually, emotionally. Um, my professors at Wheaton, especially in the English department, clearly loved what they did and drew um, intellectual and spiritual sustenance from the text that they were teaching and they talked a lot about that not in a preachy way, but in a very kind of whole cloth sort of way. And I thought, wow, I, wanna, I want to be a part of, um, I, I want to be a part of a community that is like that. And I want to help encourage students that I would teach um, to do that kind of integration of faith and learning. So I was always pretty sure I wanted to teach at a place like Wheaton or like Bethel. And when I was uh, near the end of finishing my PhD program, 
a friend applied for a job here. <laughs> um, I was pregnant and I was just starting to work on my dissertation, so it was not an ideal time to be looking for a job. But um, my, my friend turned Bethel down and uh, the dean at the time said to her, even someone who's not finished with their PhD yet, you know what Bethel is like, who might be a good candidate, and she recommended me. And uh, they ended up deciding to choose me and I've been here ever since. The college teacher that was most influential on me, both personally and as a teacher, was Roger Lundeen, um, who died unexpectedly, I think two years ago. Um, I considered him um, a friend, a mentor, I, kind of everything. Uh, when I think about why he was so influential um, on me, it was he was excited about what he was teaching. He uh, mostly did American Lit. Um, he, he clearly found what he was teaching interesting um, and was eager to learn. It was clear that he also had a uh, seminary degree and it was clear that he uh, wanted to bring together ideas across disciplines. So we'd be reading, I don't know, Hawthorne or Emerson in an American Lit class, and he would say, oh, and this reminds me of this uh, historian that I read, or this is like this particular um, part of the Westminster Catechism. I mean, so he was often pulling things together, which naturally is how I like to think. There's no way I'll ever be the teacher that he was. He was amazing, um, but I, uh, kind of aspire to being like that. Um, he also clearly cared about each student in class as a person. Um, and uh, his office door was always open. Um, I was his TA his, uh, my senior year. And uh, just noticing the number of students that would talk to him um, when I would go back to uh, waiting for homecoming, especially the first few years after I graduated, he remembered Ran unimportant random things about my life from you know back when I was 18 or 19 and, and I just think wanting to stay in touch with people um, that was important too. He was willing to be really open with us about challenges in his life. Um, he's, I remember his talking one day about uh, how hard it was for him when his brother died and then he talked about how weirdly enough I guess I shouldn't say weirdly, but how some of the authors we were reading in class, and not even necessarily theological authors, um, really helped him through rough times in his life. One of uh, my favorite professors at, at Wheaton was uh, Leland Riken, who retired a couple of years ago. Um, and he was one of those super organized teachers who wrote his lecture notes on like big, not four by six cards, but like five by seven index cards. And um, I think he actually had written himself notes where he would, where it would be like, I'm going to lecture through three of these cards and then pause and look up and ask any comments or questions. And I was always the any comments or questions kind of person. Um, and I was the one I uh, never missed class, always read every word of what was assigned, including the recommended supplement, <laughs> supplemental reading. Um, I'm just kind of a sponge, and uh, so teaching, especially at a place like Bethel where I'm often teaching 
way beyond what I did in grad school, teaching out of my field, that's perfect because that makes me have to learn things I didn't know before. I love nothing more than talking with people about what I'm learning. And so uh, it doesn't have to be, um, I want a room full of people who listen with rapt attention to my every word, although there are days when that's nice. Um, but I love being a part of um, stimulating conversations. And so, uh, you know, the best class, in my view, is one where I've been reading or rereading something and I've noticed something new or I have a question or I realize, oh, this relates to this. Um, and I come into class and I'll say, uh, here's some ideas I have. What do you guys think about this? And in an ideal world, I'll have at least some students who say, hey, I, uh, I noticed this, and especially if it's something that I hadn't noticed before. So I like to learn new things. Um, I, I think uh, on the Myers-Briggs, I'm about exactly even between being an introvert and an extrovert, and I think that makes a lot of sense for me as a teacher too, because the introvert part, I like to be alone in my office or at home enough to absorb new stuff or think about things, but then I feel like I might explode if I don't get a chance to talk about it. Um, and so teaching is uh, a perfect outlet for that. When I first started teaching, just in terms of subject matter, I didn't have the depth of knowledge that I think I have now. Um, and I, uh, I think naturally, um, naturally I was particularly drawn to the more outgoing students in class because I could relate to them more. The people who were comfortable asking questions, um, the people who were willing, uh, willing to challenge something that I'd said, people who were eager to learn along with me. I think I, I, I suppose who, <laughs> who isn't drawn to people like that, but they're the people that were like I was as a learner. Um, I think when I started teaching, since I had gone to grad school straight well and I did some teaching in grad school too so um, I was either just literally just a couple years older than my students or in some cases even younger than some of my students and and I think I was most successful um, in classes where students were comfortable with letting me be a fellow learner and um, and I hope I haven't lost that because I genuinely do care about learning along with students and I think no matter how long I teach I'm going to be able to learn something from even 18 year old students. It might be uh, a new insight about a text even one I've taught 20 times. It might be um, some, a really perceptive idea about, about life or about God. Um, so so I, I think the uh, being able to kind of help a create a comfortable learning environment, one where kind of a give and take and conversation can happen. I think that's something that felt natural to me at the beginning. Um, I th and being able to explain things in a way that a, a range of levels of understanding could understand what I'm saying. <laughs> um, I, I think that came pretty naturally also. Um, it was really easy for me at the beginning to say, uh, I, I felt pretty okay saying to students, I've never taught this book before, or I've never taught this class before. Um, 
and I, uh, the longer I teach, um, that's, less and le that's less and less true just because I'm not as often teaching something new. So I, I've read a lot more now, uh, and, and even the books that I was teaching when I started, uh, I've revisited often enough that I know them better. And I think that has pluses and minuses. Um, it has pluses because I can anticipate where there might be questions. Um, I can kind of set students, a wider range of students, set them up for success better than I could at the beginning. Um, but I think the challenge is sometimes I over-prepare class now because I, I think, oh, there's this much stuff I want you to learn about this book that I think is the most awesome book I've ever read, that I've read 50 times. Um, and when I first started teaching, I'd maybe read it twice. <laughs> um, and so I had, uh, uh, you know, this much stuff that I was trying to teach. So um, kind of filtering through all the things that I've learned is probably a bigger challenge. Um, I think I've gotten better at recognizing that um, and trying to figure out how to deal with the category of student who clearly is engaged and clearly wants to learn, but is just naturally really quiet in the classroom. And I used to take, take it personally um, if students didn't feel comfortable speaking or asking a question, or I would put a lot of points into class participation, and class participation would be defined as, well, who's comfortable talking? <laughs> um, and so one thing I've deliberately worked on is how can I make class a good learning experience for a wider range of personality types? How can I encourage the quiet people, especially the quiet people who are doing the work and who are thinking to kind of come out um, of their shell a little bit and contribute to class? A lot of the learning to teach happened when I was an undergrad because I did all of the uh, education stuff that a person preparing to be a high school teacher would have done. I did everything except student teaching. So I had taken methods, I'd read books on educational theory, all that sort of thing. So it, just in terms of having that uh, direct knowledge um, and having read some pedagogical stuff, uh, that was helpful. When I was in grad school, um, my area of specialty in English was composition. And composition is one of those fields that is cross-disciplinary, that draws from disciplines like education and linguistics and cognitive psychology, as well as literature. And so I was reading uh, theoretical stuff throughout college about how do or throughout grad school about how do people learn um, so so I had that background coming in plus I had had such a such a good experience um, with several professors when I was in college and then when I started here um, I would say that one of the people who was particularly influential on me at the very beginning was Kathy Nevins um, she had been on the faculty, I think, probably 10 or a dozen years or so when I started. She was the person directing faculty development at the time, and Bethel had a big uh, grant called Spectrum, which uh, enabled faculty participants to um, read more in um, some of the theoretical material about kind of what's going on inside the mind and the psyche of traditional age college students 
in terms of their intellectual and their moral development. And then that the experience of participating in that faculty development program uh, gave all of us a chance to think about, okay, you've read this theoretical stuff, how might that um, influence the way you would structure a class or a syllabus, the way you would interact with students, what about the way you would teach a class of first-year students versus juniors and seniors. Um, so that was, that was really helpful for me. Um, and pretty early on, I also participated in some other faculty development opportunities where uh, we would, uh, where different faculty members would take turns watching each other teach and then uh, talking with each other about teaching. And I've kind of done that actually throughout my career. So that's been really helpful too. When I started, I was teaching uh, a really high percentage of writing classes, mostly like college writing. Um, really high percentage of writing classes, that was about half of my job. And then about half of my job was, um, I was the director of writing across the curriculum. And that meant that from the get-go, at age 26 as a brand new college teacher, it was my job to work with faculty from really all departments to help them think about how they could um, help to assist student learning about writing. And so I ran workshops, um, gave people input uh, about that sort of thing. So I was kind of being a coach even as I was learning to be a better teacher from the get-go. And I, I would say that uh, during those years, maybe this was ten years or so, I mean maybe the first third or so of my career, most of the classes I taught were quote-unquote not really content classes. They were more, uh, uh, I guess, skill building, um, like college writing. And so my class prep was not so much about how am I going to prepare to teach this content well, but it was more about how can I create a comfortable classroom environment? How can I help to coach students into stronger writing? How can I help them learn to sort of help coach each other? And that was a great time in my career. That's been helpful, that's been formative, but I ultimately decided that that just, that kind of burned me out. I thought, you know what? What got me into this business in the first place is yes, I care about student learning. Yes, I care about um, being an effective coach of student writing but I, I really want a chance to learn. It, it's learning the content that was most interesting to me, and it was reading literature that I loved um, as an undergrad especially. And so over time, I've ended up teaching fewer writing classes and teaching more content classes. So uh, teaching in the humanities program, uh, teaching lit classes in the English department and gradually and now I have zero responsibility in the director of writing sort of things. I, I don't supervise people who teach college writing. I don't run the writing center anymore. So things I used to do. So I, I would say first third is mostly I'm uh, teaching skill build, largely skill building and helping faculty, I guess, develop some of their pedagogical skills. And then since then has been moving more and more into teaching content stuff. And that has required me to learn uh, new teaching skills 
or at least adapt other teaching skills because it's, it's a really different thing to help students over the course of, say, a week or two um, learn to read a long, complicated novel well um, and to teach, to teach that as opposed to helping students learn to write a good paper. I admire different people for different things. So since I teach in the humanities program, that means I've been able to um, see different, uh, I've been able to see different people lecturing and in general lecturing isn't my, I, I t in general I teach smaller classes that are more uh, discussion and small group work oriented. So teaching in humanities means that at least once a week we're in large group lecture so I've been able to see different people um, who are really good lecturers um, and I think the absolutely hands down the person that stands out to me is Wayne Rosa. Um, I've heard him do uh, various art history lectures for humanities. Um, some of them I've, I've heard almost exactly the same lecture 10 or a dozen times. Um, but every time uh, something new strikes me or he spins things in a slightly different way, uh, he is so good at um, talking in a really detailed and interesting way about a particular artistic artifact, particular building or a painting or a sculpture, but then also helping to put that piece into a larger historical, theological, cultural, philosophical context. Um, and that impulse of here's what I know from my discipline and here's how my knowledge outside my discipline uh, informs what I know. I mean, kind of the back and forth between one discipline and another, um, th that's what I love as a learner. So that's one of the things I so appreciate about him. Um, so in terms of lecturing, far and away, I would say, um, uh, I would say Wayne uh, really stands out. Wow, there, I mean, there's so, so many people who are good, <laughs> who are good teachers here. Um, I mean, I mentioned uh, Kathy was particularly informed, Kathy Nevins was particularly formative for me, especially in the early time in my career um, as she was working in faculty development. Um, I remember very distinctly she uh, observed one of my classes one day. I, it was probably my, I don't know, second or third year as a faculty member. And uh, she had some really helpful input for me, um, and, but delivered it in a way that m made me feel affirmed rather than uh, stupid. <laughs> um, I've, I've watched uh, Gary Long teach several times, and uh, he, uh, he uses such a great combination of holding students accountable at a really high standard um, and I think sometimes they're a, little they're a little afraid of him, but he also uses humor really effectively in class. I observed one of his classes one day, you know, like a two hour long class, and the, um, the variation of the, the variety of activities he had students engage in, the ways he used um, visual, uh, visual stuff, you know, Google Maps and Google Earth, um, and then artifacts. Uh, like archaeological artifacts uh, that he that he brought in. I naturally want what I'm learning to connect with who I am as a person and who I am as a person includes who I am as a Christian. 
So things, so I, I just naturally ask uh, theological kinds of questions with anything that I read. And similarly, things that I read inform how I think about God, how I think about humanity, um, how, yeah, inform my theology. So it could be a novel, it could be a poem. Um, so th that's kind of who I am naturally. And teaching at a place like Bethel not only encourages me to be that kind of a teacher, but pretty much requires me to be that kind of a teacher. Um, I, I know that uh, you know, most of the students I teach are traditional age college students. And I know that the research says that is a significantly formative time in people's lives. Uh, people who have been raised Christian, just like I was. Uh, I was raised in a, as a pastor's kid in a fairly conservative evangelical home. Uh, asked Jesus into my heart when I was three years old um, and uh, went to Christian school. And I know that a lot of my students have similar backgrounds. Then they get to college and even a Christian college like Bethel, um, they start asking questions that they never felt free to ask before. Maybe it's because of an experience that they've had or um, someone they get to know in the dorm or something that we assign for them to read. So they're asking questions, and, um, and I, I think that they need people who can be companions with them through that experience, um, not necessarily saying this is clearly the right answer, but sort of helping to encourage them to ask questions so that ultimately the faith that they do emerge with is faith that they feel that they own. Um, and that's, that's something I, uh, that I feel free free to do here. I'm encouraged to sort of be a companion in that process. And I think most students who choose to come to Bethel choose Bethel in part because they want their spiritual lives to be a part of their college experience. They may not exactly know what that's going to mean. Um, so I, I, I'm happy to be a part of that. People should study English um, because uh, words are important. Um, one of the ways that God has revealed himself to us is through the words of Scripture. Um, the Bible is, uh, isn't, isn't a systematic theology textbook. It's not a philosophical book. The Bible is really a, uh, a library of um, a collection or a library of works written at different times in different places, often directed at different people in different genres. And so studying English can be uh, one tool to help a person appreciate a really important book um, in a more full way. So to be able to appreciate the beauty of the poetry in the Psalms, for example, to be able to know something about how to read stories in uh, then looking at Jesus's parables, uh, for example, um, knowing something about the use of, say, symbolism and imagery uh, can help to enhance a person's reading of, say, the book of Revelation. Um, I mean, there, there are whole classes that people teach at some institutions, uh, books that people have written on seeing the Bible as a work of literature. So, uh, you know, I think that's one, one reason uh, to study English. Um, and recognizing that one of the really important ways that humans communicate with each other and express who they are and learn from others 
who they are is uh, certainly words aren't the only way, but words are a really important way. Obviously, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I've read a little bit about the things that we're starting to learn about. Uh, many people have suggested that our brains are actually wired to, um, to be recipients of and creators of stories. I mean, story is sort of a, a natural human impulse. We like to hear stories. We like to tell stories. Um, we like to be the crafters of stories. And one of the big things that English does <laughs> is looks at stories and um, helps people learn to be better crafters of stories. Um, I, I think learning to appreciate beauty is an important part of being a Christian and important part of being a human. And one of the most beautiful things that exists is a, a well-crafted sentence, um, a, a beautiful image in a poem. I, I think of the experience I have um, often in uh, <clears throat> reading a poem or uh, reading um, another literary text where I think, it might be a poem about an, uh, an experience that I've had or a place that I've been, and I think that, that word is exactly right. Um, that way of saying it is exactly right, kind of this level of resonance. People who are interested in learning about what does it mean to be human, what, uh, why is the, uh, what's our relationship with God, what's our relationship with each other, uh, you know, those are perennial questions, and English is one of the disciplines that asks and addresses those questions, but in kind of complicated and messy ways. Good novels, good short stories, good poetry doesn't um, tie things up neatly with a bow, but says, here's a person or a group of people facing a particular dilemma, having to make a choice. Um, I can vicariously have that experience and enhance who I am and, and then learn from that. Uh, through, through reading. Um, there's obviously the instrumental reasons. We know that being able to communicate well, especially in writing, by being able to read well, being able to articulate uh, oneself in writing are important skills, um, but that's far and away not the primary uh, reason why a person should study English. People over time, people in the past and now, uh, have asked the same kinds of questions in one way or another. You know, we, we are uh, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans. Um, we today ask questions like, what does it mean to be human? Um, is there a God? If there is a God, how do humans interact with, uh, with that God? How do humans interact with each other? Um, I mean, those kinds of sort of big questions, it, sort of implied by the word humanities, but those kind of big questions are important questions to ask. Um, they are questions that in one way or another, even people who right now think, well, I don't care about those questions, I've never asked them, will absolutely ask those questions at some time in their life. Face a horrible experience with the um, illness or death of a loved one. Read about um, a uh, devastating hurricane and then saying, I believe that God is good and that God is powerful, yet I'm aware that really horrible things happen in the world. Happen in the world. How am I going to make sense of that? And every single discipline within the humanities 
addresses questions like that, but in different ways. And when I think about different times in my life, um, when I've been asking questions like that, sometimes what I've needed is um, music. Sometimes I've needed visual art. Sometimes I've needed um, a literary work. Sometimes I've needed a philosophical or a theological work. But uh, I'm, in, I'm a richer person because of what I have studied in a range of disciplines, and not just a richer person, but I think I'm, I'm better equipped um, to think about current events. I'm better equipped to think about how I might vote, what church I should go to, uh, who, I, who I think I should be in the world, um, how I should be at work. I mean, all of those kinds of questions are ones that the humanities have asked and addressed um, over centuries. Everyone should study the sciences because uh, we live in a physical, we are physical beings, we live in a physical world, and uh, the physicality of the world operates according to various rules and principles that are really important to know. And obviously, um, it's only the people who study this, uh, a particular science in depth who become knowledgeable and skilled enough to look at things like, uh, can we find a cure for HIV AIDS? Can we find a cure for cancer? You know, all of those kinds of things. But we're all affected by the physical world and we affect the physical world because we're embodied beings and the sciences help to um, equip people uh, in, especially for the physicality of the world, I think. I think teaching is an art and a craft and a science. How's that? <laughs> um, maybe that's a cheater sort of answer. Um, so there, uh, I guess I'll start with the science part. Um, there are things that, especially neuroscientists, are learning and are starting to make evident uh, in ways that non-neuroscientists can understand about how the brain works, about uh, the kinds of things that therefore help to assist memory and help to assist learning. Um, if I know those kinds of things, and that can then shape the way I teach or the way I communicate with my students, I can increase the likelihood that I uh, can help them learn better. So there's that science part of it. The way we commonly use words like art and craft, I think we use the word art in this context to be a little more like, well, some people just naturally are good teachers. And, and I think there are some personality, like there, there are some things that I naturally do um, because I'm reasonably extroverted, because I like to ask questions, because I like to have conversations. So those aspects of teaching come easily to me in a way that someone who knows the discipline really, really well, but is really, really shy might struggle with. So, so yeah, there's, there's some, I think, some personality things that are, make aspects of teaching easier than others. And then the craft part, I've probably over the course of my career read, I, I'd say easily 50 or more books or articles um, related to teaching in some way. And sometimes, you know, the takeaway is here's a particular idea of a way I might uh, articulate an assignment. 
So sometimes it's that narrow. Uh, sometimes it's here's some principles around how you can increase the likelihood that a small group experience will be a positive one for students rather than a negative one where the one student does all the work and no one else does it. So um, I think there are those kinds of things where learning, oh, I see, here, here's some principles about small group instruction. That's the, that's the craft part that you can learn from others who are good at, at it or from books and articles that have been written. Probably the most formative metaphor for me comes from Parker Palmer, who uh, he's in his 80s now. I've I heard him speak a couple of times. He's written several books about teaching. Uh, one, of, one of them is called To Know As We Are Known. Um, and the, the line is, to teach is to create a space in which obedience to truth is practiced. And in that book and in some of his other writings, he sort of unpacks that sentence um, and uh, the, I would say the line in that definition that I have found most formative in thinking about what would my metaphor for teaching be is create a space. And so at times I think literally, physically, um, what is it about the particular space of a specific classroom where I'm gonna be teaching to the extent possible, what can I do to make that space more conducive to the kind of learning I would like to see happen with this particular group of students in this particular class? And sometimes space is more uh, conceptual or more metaphorical. What can I do to help invite refl individual reflection as well as group consideration of ideas? So creating a space might mean are there times when I can help students um, we do some writing in class at the beginning and no one puts their name on it, we pass it around and different people read out loud what those contributions were. I think, you know, so there, there's a way of creating a space in which many contributions can come forward but no one had to take the risk to say, this is my question or my idea. Um, sometimes creating a space is, um, for me is uh, giving students an assignment where I say, these are the goals. Here's, here's what I'm trying to accomplish by making you do a project, but I'm not gonna tell you what the project needs to look like. I want you to grapple with how to, how to come up with something that meets these goals. I'll support you along the way. We're gonna have a couple of conferences. I'll look at a draft. I'm happy to discuss ideas with you, but I'm not gonna say, uh, this is exactly what the paper has to look like. In fact, maybe it wouldn't be a paper, maybe it would be a documentary, maybe it would be something else. So I, I just keep thinking about space. Um, thinking about that metaphor and the idea of space has often led me, uh, has more recently led me to read a lot about just the whole notion of hospitality. What does a good host do to create a hospitable space? Um, how does a host help support the guests? And so thinking about myself as host, my students as guests, but then what about the text that we bring into class? How are the things I'm asking my students to read in a way like guests that we are inviting into the room? So how can I help my students learn to be good hosts to those guests um, to practice hermeneutical hospitality, I guess? towards the things we're reading. What I like about teaching a P course, since that's kind of 
the senior seminar of, of Bethel's gen ed experience, um, I have often, I usually teach that class in the spring, so I often have people who are about to graduate from a range of majors, um, and it can be kind of a, <laughs> a group therapy, uh, helping people feel ready to be launched, um, helping to reinforce some of the things that they've been learning all along. I just, I like the kinds of relationships I'm able to develop with those students. Um, I often, a third or a half of those students are people who had a class from me maybe when they were first or second year students. It's fun to have, um, to see them again in a totally different context. I would also say that one of my cl favorite classes to teach is humanities uh, because of the way the humanities program is structured. Uh, I go through the humanities one through four sequence every two years. So I feel like I'm teaching humanities often enough that I'm not having to reinvent everything each time, but infrequently enough that I'm not, I'm not tired of Aristotle yet. <laughs> um, and humanities really scratches my, I want to learn things uh, about a whole, you know, scr scratches that itch, um, my desire to learn a whole bunch of things. And on our teaching team, we have people from different departments. Um, we're always recommending books to each other, learning things from each other's lectures. In a class where students, where maybe students are doing uh, more personal writing, a class like Prose Studio where students are largely writing personal essays, if I know something about a student or a student has revealed something about him or herself in uh, something that's being written, it's really hard then to be objective in grading it. Um, I don't think there is such a thing as a objectivity in grading anyway, no matter what we may tell each other or tell our students. But um, so sometimes that's challenging. It can be challenging if I know a student is going through a particular personal struggle that's interfering with that student's ability to be present in class. Um, so you know th that's the challenge. I think on the positives, on the particularly positive side. Um, one thing I do when I teach humanities is in humanities one, since I know I'll have most of those students in seminar um, for their whole freshman year and then for fall of their sophomore year. I usually meet with each of them individually in the first two weeks of the semester. Um, you know, just who are you, where are you from? And then I always ask the question, um, is there anything about, uh, anything that you want to tell me uh, that you think might have an effect on how things go for you in this class. And sometimes students will say, I did AP World History in, in high school, I'm super excited about this, you know, et cetera. And sometimes students will say, uh, let, uh, in the fall I had a couple of students who said, um, I really like to learn, but I get so nervous saying things in front of other people in class. And I want to work on that, but I don't think I, I don't think I'm asking you to call on me directly right now. <laughs> so I, I had, I think literally I had four female students from my seminar in the fall who, uh, three of the four were among my best students in class. So knowing that they were uh, really quiet and were aware of that and wanted to see that change led me to think about how I might help bring them out without putting them on the spot too much. And already now, Humanities 3, we're two weeks in, 
um, a couple of them have regularly been offering comments. And, and so I, I know that's not directly related to the content, but it very much relates to uh, sort of thinking about how my, if I'm partly a coach, I think that's another helpful teaching metaphor. If I'm a coach, if I know something about the players on my team, <laughs> I can be a more helpful coach for them. What I hope <laughs> is uh, that there will be good attendance and prepared participation and that students will try and that they'll ask for help if they need it. I know that life happens. I know that uh, especially if I'm teaching, uh, say, a first-year class. Um, so life happens. Not everyone is equally equipped for college. Um, most of the classes I teach, students could take to fulfill a gen ed requirement. Uh, like I teach world literature, for example, that fulfills a U requirement. Um, and so there are some students who are taking that class just to fulfill that requirement or just because it happens to fit in their schedule, they may be less motivated. So I usually tell students at the beginning of the semester, um, being here is really important because I think things that will enhance your learning will, uh, are going to happen in class. If you're not here, that won't happen. And you may have contributions to make to other people's learning. So I do various things to uh, I try to intrinsically motivate students to be there by making sure that we do interesting things in class and by asking students pretty regularly, does it seem to you like class is being, is time well spent? Um, and, but I also build in extrinsic motivations. Uh, sometimes it's quizzes, sometimes it's, you know, different kinds of things I might do in class. I know that the vast majority of students left to their own devices, even if they have good intentions, will not do the class reading unless I find ways to make that happen. So again, I try to make the reading sound interesting and important by the way I talk about it or the questions I give them. Um, if it's reading that I know is difficult, I'll provide supports of different kinds. And then I virtually always have them write something about what they've read, uh, do some kind of discussion where it would be pretty clear who has and hasn't been doing the reading. Um, I tell my students, I, I think that they um, have the right to have expectations of me. And um, I, one of my pet peeves as a student was professors who were really slow to give feedback. And I tell them that um, I will always give them quick feedback, whether it's a response to a question that they email to me, or uh, especially feedback on written work that they've done. That's one of my highest priorities as a teacher. And I, uh, if I'm staying on top of grading, I have a better sense of who's struggling. Um, I can tell right away who didn't turn in an assignment on time. Um, and if things are going well, I can say in class, um, hey, Sam had a really good insight in the response that he wrote yesterday. Um, so I try to at least, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say n I never go longer than a week before returning student work, even big assignments, and usually I get things back faster than that. Um, and, and I, uh, with most students, I think th they can tell that I'm putting in the work to stay on top of things in class. 
and uh, at least with some of the, the, the people who would be kind of in the middle or maybe uh, a little bit less engaged, I think that that's one of the things I try to do to keep them motivated. Um, I, I say I want you to ask questions about things. Um, get, be, be patient with, you know, be a, be a charitable reader of what we're reading, but also be willing to interrogate it also, and I try to model that in what's happening in class. I would hope that they would say that I uh, challenged them to do good work and to ask good, uh, to ask important questions, um, but that I also gave them the support that they need in order to be able to do that work. So I, I would hope that a, a struggling student would say, um, she helped to support me so that I could do what I was able to do in that class. And I hope that especially a stronger student would say, um, she challenged me not to slack off. Uh, and uh, so I would say just in, mostly in terms of, I guess, their intellectual work, I would hope they'd say that. And I would hope that they would say it was obvious she cared about me. People often say, oh, you've been teaching for a long time. What changes have you seen in, in student work? And I think one of the biggest changes I've seen is in a diminishment of student resilience and increasing sense among students that if something is hard or initially unpleasant, it therefore is best to avoid it. And writing, um, I, I, if, if all I'm doing, I, I often say to students, you might have gotten really good grades on your writing in high school one of the big ways the college is different is because, for the most part, the ideas you're writing about are harder and are more complicated, or at least they should be, as you move on in college. And if you're trying to write about harder things, the vehicle you're choosing to write about it, you know, so, so the form you're choosing is maybe not going to be adequate. So uh, your writing might look worse at least initially in college than it did when you were in high school. Um, and that's not a bad thing, that's an okay thing. Um, a first draft doesn't even remotely predict the quality of a later draft. And, so, and same with reading. Um, you can't read a novel or a, a collection of poetry the way you might read a textbook. You don't have boldface and headings and uh, here's the summary at the end. You don't have those kind of helps and you absolutely can't skim a novel. If all you want to get is names of main characters and plot, you can get that from Sparknotes. You can, you can get that probably if you're skimming. But if the point of a novel is the experience of kind of inhabiting the space that the novel has welcomed you into, you have to give that time. Um, and and so, the, so the time, patience, and the willingness to power through even if something feels initially hard or unpleasant, those are challenges. And that's always been a challenge. I just feel like it seems like that's becoming a bigger challenge. Realistically, um, I don't have time to reread everything I'm teaching every semester. Um, when I started teaching, in many cases, I was you know, it might, this might be literally the second time I've ever read something. I read it once in college or read it once and that helped me decide I'm going to teach it and now I need to read it again. 
So one thing I, I usually each semester pick one class I'm teaching that's going to get uh, more of my mental attention than my other classes. And then I, if, if these are classes I teach regularly, I try to kind of uh, alternate um, which class gets the biggest amount of attention. So, so that, would, that would say, you know, what am I actually going to be rereading? Um, I usually start by looking, if it's a class I teach regularly, or at least have taught before, I look back at my notes from the last time I taught the class. Um, and if I, so sometimes it'll be, oh, that's how I did this class session last time. Um, that went well, and what I know of this group of students so far, I think that that plan will work again. So it might, I mean, it might be as simple as that. How did I craft that plan in the first place? Um, I usually start by asking, why am I having them read this particular, we're, uh, in humanities we're reading um, some selections from Jonathan Edwards right now. And um, we'll be spending, I think, three seminars on Jonathan Edwards. Today is the first one. So, uh, you know, so I always start by asking of the many things a person might learn about Jonathan Edwards, what are the things that I think are most important um, for humanities three students this semester we have three seminars on Jonathan Edwards what it, sometimes I do this in writing sometimes I do it in my head but I might actually jot down okay here's like four or five things that I want them to have as their Jonathan Edwards takeaways is there one of those that feels like it would be the best fit with today um, and then uh, how do I anticipate they're going to be responding to today's reading I, I had put I put some questions on Moodle already uh, that are things I want them to think about. So that's how I'll structure um, the class period is around those questions. Yeah, the how I prepare, it, you know, it depends. Um, my Plot Thickens class meets once a week. So that's a three-hour chunk of time. And so having a lot of variety in that three-hour period is really important. In a 70-minute period, uh, m maybe if we do two things that are different, that works okay. Um, so I kind of think of what about this particular class period, but I'm always kind of zooming in and out, zooming out to what about the previous class period, what about the one after, how does this fit into the unit as a whole, even the course as a whole. In humanities, it's even the whole, <laughs> the whole sequence. They're reading for today Jonathan Edwards' personal narrative, and they've just read Mary Rowlandson's narrative of her captivity. So there's two autobiographies they're reading this semester. They will be reading Ben Franklin, part of uh, his personal narrative in a couple of weeks. Um, in the fall, they read uh, Augustine's Confessions. They read some things by Julian of Norwich. So I'm, I'm always thinking about how can I encourage them mentally to connect back to what they've already read? How can I prepare them to anticipate what's going to be coming next? Um, so I try to make sure that that comes up. Don't expect your first time through to go as well as you might hope. In fact, um, in my experience, it's often the third time is often kind of the charm. Um, so I, I, I often try to encourage people to do good work, but also to um, lower their 
expectations and be more charitable with themselves, especially a new teacher who's new out of grad school. People who become college teachers were, for the most part, really good students across the board and are used to getting A's on things. And now they're doing something that might feel new and unfamiliar. Um, I, if they haven't even built the syllabus yet, I, I usually try to s say, all right, let's kind of, let's, let's do kind of some big picture stuff. What are the most important things you want your students to get out of class? You know, people talk about backward design. I think that's helpful in thinking about a class as a whole. Where do you want them to end up if you run into your students six months or a year from now and you say, hey, what are some things you remember from this class? What are the things you most hope they'll say? So to kind of start there and then work backward, um, that can help get uh, a person come up with a plan for the course as a whole. And then how do you then chunk it into smaller and smaller pieces? Um, that would be for a person who's make, creating a class from scratch. If a person's a new teacher who is teaching a class that someone else has already taught, I would probably encourage that person, um, at least for the first time around, to feel okay about leaning pretty heavily on someone else's plan um, so that they are not having to, um, to, to do everything all at once. Um, it can be really overwhelming to teach first semester um, and be at a new place with all of our other responsibilities. And if they're teaching that one class, that's not the only class they're teaching, they're teaching other ones also. So I, I, I might even be as uh, prescriptive and I, I, I'm kind of um, org organized in an almost anal sort of way when it comes to how I think about different things. So it might be, okay, like I might do with a student, let's, let's look at what your schedule week to week is going to look like. How about if you carve out this is your time when you're going to uh, work on this class and you can't let yourself do more than, <laughs> you, you can't let yourself do more. So kind of how can you get as much work done as you need to while also being realistic about your expectations? I would give similar advice to students. Um, I, would, uh, I would say uh, I usually, um, in a given class, I, I say, all right, here's how I've organized the schedule part of the syllabus in this class. Um, here's the, re the regular rhythm you're going to need to get used to in this class. So in this class, every Thursday, you have a short reflective paper due to Moodle. Um, and he, so I try to give them a sense of what the rhythm of the class is going to be like. Uh, I tell them that um, obviously coming prepared to class is what's preferable. They'll get more out of class if they're prepared. They'll feel better about themselves if they show up prepared. But even if they're not prepared, it's still better to come to class that the thing, the best thing they can do is stay in touch with me and with others in class. And the worst thing they can do is to let themselves get into the hole that can feel impossible to dig yourself out of by uh, avoiding me and avoiding class if they get a little bit behind because they feel bad about that. Um, and so I often try to set up a class to make that less likely. Um, I encourage them to 
get to know other people in class. And so, especially with first year students, I'll usually set up kind of required small discussion or study groups. Um, and they have to send me, here's an email that says who was at this meeting where we did part of our homework. Here's the answers we came up with to our questions. So I kind of try to require them a couple of times to do things that if they then choose to do it on their own could be a really good idea. The most important thing Bethel can do is to continue to support and encourage um, faculty to be as um, holistic in our thinking as we can about our work. So to think about um, how can my scholarship, how can my service, how can my teaching um, be of a piece. How, uh, so to provide, to have ways to support and encourage that. Uh, integration of faith and learning, um, thinking about students as whole people is really important but can take a wide variety of forms. And in general, I think that Bethel does a good job of allowing faculty members to personalize that. Um, I think it would be a mistake for Bethel to go in a direction like some Christian colleges have gone to, uh, to say this is exactly what it means to do faith learning integration. Everyone has to articulate this kind of Christian worldview, that sort of thing. I, I think this is one of those places where our pietist heritage um, shows up well. I wish that Bethel uh, worked harder to show greater respect for the importance of the work that faculty do. Um, some, some members of the administration do that well and others uh, I think view us as contract workers sometimes. Um, I would, I would say I, uh, I hope that Bethel is able to maintain its Christian identity without morphing in. We always kind of, we kind of walk a razor's edge. Sometimes uh, Bethel talks and acts like Bethel is a church. And that's going, in my opinion, uh, too far and is uh, maybe unintentionally making the, being too narrow in its thinking about who might be a good fit as a faculty member or a staff person or a student. Um, I would also like to see us uh, find better ways to have genuine, honest, and good conversations about controversial issues that divide Christians um, both here and elsewhere. And I, I don't think we've found good ways to have those honest conversations. Mm -hmm.